How about a three-pound chicken, you're all dying to ask me? Well, the answer to that is, over two hours, nearly three hours in 1900, 71 minutes in 1950, and 24 minutes by the end of the 20th century to earn the money necessary that would give you the purchasing power to buy you a three-pound chicken. Now, what I've just described here is also relevant to the issue of child labor. This is another thing they throw against the market economy. You know, can't have free market because, you know, kids have to work, and, and if, if we had a non-market economy, the kids could just skip through meadows all day. You know, and, that, that's, and, and that's, that's the difference. But the question becomes, why are the children working? So no, no one asks this question. The, the assumption is that if you have one of these third world countries where a lot of children work, the assumption is that all the parents in that country just stink. Like this is like a country of stinko parents. Like we should just go in there and just take all these children away from these savages, you know, they, who don't know how to raise children. But we really should ask, I mean, try to understand the world around us. You know, like why are the kids working in the first place? It's because the society they live in is so un physically unproductive that if the kids don't work, the family starves. That's why they work. That's why child labor has existed since the beginning of time. It's not like people said, okay, capitalism's here, kids, off to the mines. <laughs> kids have been working forever in every society. It never occurred to anyone that someday you could live in a society in which your labor was so productive thanks to the capital goods at your disposal, that you could work and earn enough purchasing power so that your kids wouldn't have to. Never occurred to anyone. But look at what we have here. I mean, look at it in our society. Think of how much more work one person can do with a steam shovel than he could do with a regular shovel. And multiply that, extrapolate that through our whole, our whole economy. But up till the free market uh, came along, up to the capitalist economy, Everybody just assumed, okay, life consists of grinding poverty and then you're dead. Everybody assumed that. So nobody in the year 1100 is going around protesting poverty. No one. You will not find anyone protesting poverty or having a hunger strike or a candlelight vigil about poverty because everybody assumed, everybody assumed, of course you're going to be poor. That's the way life is. You're poor. Live with it. I mean, even the king, even the king has to urinate and then toss it out the window because they didn't have flush toilets until very recently. The king, for heaven's sake. All right, now that one, Chad may end up bleeping out. We'll have to just see. But, so you understand my point, that it's only when the free market comes along and we see that poverty begins to diminish, that people become impatient with poverty, and they say, wait a minute, they say, for the first time, it seems possible that poverty could be done away with, then they start complaining about it. But what's the point complaining about it when you think it is a fixture of life? So in terms of the child labor issue, child labor goes away, not because you pass a law saying children aren't going to work, it goes away because the economy, thanks to the free market, becomes capital intensive enough that it can produce enough stuff that mom and dad can work, the kids don't have to. That's what does it. Now you can say, but wait a minute, I know we've had child labor laws. Oh yeah, those things are just super, they work great, there's no evasion of those laws at all. Those are really well observed. In fact, in Bangladesh, the British charity Oxfam pointed out that when a bunch of Americans and Europeans were, were griping and complaining about uh, uh, child labor in Bangladesh, and I don't mean to make light, I mean nobody likes child labor. The point is, it, to, to say that we can just pass a law against it is like saying we'll pass a law against gravity 
and then we'll all fly. I mean, it's, I wish the world were that simple. Like, yeah, there's, gee, there's something about the world I don't like. I'll just pass a law and it'll just go away. I mean, how, how, how childish and juvenile is that? But anyway, that's how, unfortunately, a lot of, uh, a lot of our teachers seem to think. But anyway, so they've they're got this big, big um, campaign against uh, child labor in Bangladesh. So what happens? Did child labor go away when Bangladesh got rid of it? The Bangladesh government got rid of it? No, what happened was, as Oxfam reported, the children either went into prostitution instead, which is, you know, as bad as it is to work in a sweatshop, you know, obviously it could be worse. They either went into uh, prostitution or they starved. That's what happened. Well, nice going, geniuses. W way to solve that problem. But that was, that was the approach. Even the International Labor Organization, which doesn't concede anything like this, admits that, okay, the reason the kids are working is that the society is so poor that they're contributing at least a quarter of the family income. And when you're living in a society like that, if you lose a quarter of the family income, you're de that's it. You're dead. That's it. So what, we, what they need is more capitalism. And, and, and that would sound like uh, no one would take this seriously, right? I mean, in, uh, you know, on MSNBC or whatever. But that is obviously, when you think about the logic of it, that is obviously what they need. There is no other physically uh, plausible solution. The Misplaced Fear of Monopoly by Thomas E. Woods, Jr. Historian Bert Folsom made an important distinction in his book, The Myth of the Robber Barons, between political entrepreneurs and market entrepreneurs. The political entrepreneur succeeds by using the implicit violence of government to cripple his competitors and harm consumers. The market entrepreneur, on the other hand, makes his fortune by providing consumers with products they need at prices they can afford and maintains and expands his market share by remaining innovative and responsive to consumer demand. It is only the political entrepreneur who deserves our censure, but both types are indiscriminately attacked in the popular caricature that has deformed American public opinion on the subject. Andrew Carnegie, for instance, almost single-handedly reduced the price of steel rails from $160 per ton in 1875 to $17 per ton nearly a quarter century later. John D. Rockefeller pushed the price of refined petroleum down from more than 30 cents per gallon to 5.9 cents in 1897. Cornelius Vanderbilt, operating earlier in the century, reduced fares on steamboat transit by 90, 95, and even 100 percent on trips for which a fare was not charged, Vanderbilt earned his money by selling concessions on board. These are benefactors of mankind to be praised, not villains to be condemned. To be sure, there are caveats, as there always are in history. For a time, Carnegie did support steel tariffs. Since he substantially reduced the price of steel rails, though, this political position of his did not harm the consumer. Other critics will point to the Carnegie and Rockefeller foundations and the dubious causes these institutions have supported. Their objection is irrelevant to the specific question of whether the men themselves, in their capacity as entrepreneurs, improve the American standard of living. The question is not even debatable. Mainstream economics identifies monopolists by their behavior. They earn premium profits by restricting output and raising prices. Was that behavior evident in the industries where monopoly was most frequently alleged to have existed? Economist Thomas DeLorenzo, in an important article in the International Review of Law and Economics, actually bothered to look. During the 1880s, when real GDP rose 24%, output in the industries alleged to have been monopolized for which data were available 
rose 175% in real terms. Prices in those industries, meanwhile, were gradually falling and much faster than the 7% decline for the economy as a whole. We've already discussed steel rails, which fell from $68 to $32 per ton during the 1880s. We might also note the price of zinc, which fell from $5.51 to $4.40 per pound, a 20% decline, and refined sugar, which fell from $0.09 to $0.07 per pound, 22%. In fact, this pattern held true for all 17 supposedly monopolized industries, with the trivial exceptions of castor oil and matches. In other words, the story we thought we knew from our history class was a fake. Or another area, I remember, good grief, I remember when I was in high school, I remember reading the textbooks I was being given in high school, and I remember thinking, there is something rotten in here. There is something that is just not right. And in particular, I remember the way big business was, was uh, treated. Now, you can't make any blanket statements about big business, because sometimes businessmen are wicked and should be behind bars. I mean, there's no question about that. They're just, they have all the same moral foibles the rest of us have. But at the same time, you also can't go to the other extreme and say, all businessmen are evil. They're all evil. All they do all day is exploit people. And, and uh, because of big business, if, if big business had their way, we'd all be crawling around, eating dirt, you know, working 80-hour weeks for a cent, a, a cent an hour. Uh, you know, that's the view that you get, that I got in high school, was that, man, if they had their way, that would be our fate. And thankfully, the, the lesson goes, the government stepped in and protected us from these wicked businessmen. Because the government is made up of wonderful people who have nothing but the best intentions, who just want to rescue us from all the wicked people. That is the view you get. It's in every textbook. There ain't no textbook. Oh, I have to be careful. There isn't a textbook out there that teaches you anything different. You get the same old the businessmen were wicked. Well, what I've tried to suggest um, in my book and in some of my other work is that, in fact, if it weren't for big business in the 19th century, which is the time when supposedly everybody was being exploited by the businessmen and all that, people would have been living much, much more miserable lives than they actually were living. Because, for instance, if you think of the guy who has been most demonized of all, the guy who they may as well draw horns on his head in the textbook, would be John D. Rockefeller, the great oil giant who was involved in refining oil. Now, it's important to remember, by the way, that you know, oil, you pump it from, from the ground, and then you refine it, and then you use it. Well, initially, people didn't know you could really use this black stuff coming up from the ground. It was just a big nuisance. If you were a farmer, and you had oil uh, underneath your property, and it would seep up from time to time, it was just a big nuisance. Well, then people realized that it could be refined into kerosene, which you could use to light your home. Well, now suddenly that black stuff is very worthwhile. So if you've ever seen, I don't know if anybody, any of the young people have ever seen the Beverly Hillbillies. But the, the, the show starts with a guy who all of a sudden, hey, there's oil on his, on his property, and he's not sad about that at all. means he's going to be an instant millionaire, and he's going to move out to Beverly, you know, Beverly Hills. Okay. Well, ultimately that's what happens, that people figured out this black stuff that seems like it's just annoying has a very important use. And in the mid-19th century, it was discovered you could actually pump it up from the ground. You don't have to wait for it to just bubble to the surface and then try to scoop it up. You can pump it from the ground. Well, this changes uh, the landscape because now you can make this into kerosene. And instead of having to light your home using whale oil as an illuminant, you can use kerosene. Whale oil costs like $500 zillion an ounce. That's an approximation. It's not an, an exact statistic. 
but it's extremely expensive. Most people can't afford whale oil. Whales aren't that happy that people are using whale oil either. But if you don't have to use whale oil anymore because you've got cheap black stuff coming out of the ground, that's an advance. And so John D. Rockefeller got involved in, in uh, the refining of oil. You take the crude oil from the ground, you refine it, and make it into kerosene. Well, the interesting thing about Rockefeller is sort of twofold. First, when Rockefeller first got started in this, kerosene was a dollar a gallon. By the time Rockefeller was done, it was 10 cents a gallon. Now imagine something, in our day, nothing really other than computers seems to go down in price. Imagine something going down by that many percentage points in price, and something that's so essential. You don't have to go to bed early anymore because you can't afford the whale oil to light your home. You can actually stay up late at night. Great, wonderful. I'm sure parents are thrilled at that. My kids can stay up even later than before. Great. But that is an advance in people's lives. Okay? They, they, have, they have a much higher standard of living as a result of this. They can get these things for much uh, cheaper. Secondly is that Rockefeller was a stickler for efficiency. He hated wasting things or throwing things away. Okay? Now, I know we all know people who just don't throw anything away, and that's not very efficient at all. They're just things pile up old magazines or whatever. But what I mean is that when, when Rockefeller would refine the crude oil, he had all this guck left over. He's, here's his kerosene, here's the guck. And he says, I got like piles of guck over here. I mean, I'm just, and I'm just throwing it away. Isn't there anything I can do with guck? That's his first instinct is, I got the guck. I don't want to just throw it away. There's got to be some use. Somebody maybe needs some guck. Well, then he, he is able to develop 300 separate products out of guck that comes from crude oil. Now that's amazing, all right? I mean, this is not some guy to be despised and hated and draw horns on his head. I mean, we should reward that guy. I mean, yeah, he, be he became rich. Well, he should. If he can figure out 300 things to do with guck, I'll give him a couple of bucks, too. So this is an important advance. But instead, what do you read in the textbooks? Oh, he's vicious and terrible. And... But what you don't hear about is, well, did oil get cheaper or did it get more expensive? It got much cheaper. Now, it's true that the Rockefeller Foundation has done a lot of rotten things. That's a separate matter. The point is that as an entrepreneur, Rockefeller was a, was, did great work for the average person. Or then you have Andrew Carnegie. He was involved in steel production. Every other thing in a modern economy is either made out of steel or requires steel in order to make it. So if you can cut the price of steel, you can make everything in the whole economy cheaper. You can make everybody better off. The government can make you better off by robbing your neighbor and giving you the money. But that doesn't make your neighbor better off. But if I can make everything you and your neighbor buy cheaper, that helps everybody. Carnegie was able to do that. He was so efficient that in his homestead plant in Pennsylvania, with 4,000 men, he could produce three times the steel they were producing at the greatest European uh, uh, factory uh, with 15,000 men. I mean, he's super efficient, such that thanks largely to Carnegie's efforts, the price of steel rails over the course of about a quarter century declined about 90%. Again, almost like the reduction in the price of kerosene. An amazing advance. So that means not only does, is steel cheaper, but now everything that requires steel is cheaper. Now, do we see in the textbooks people saying, wow, that's wonderful that Carnegie did this. No, Carnegie's terrible and greedy and wicked and evil. Well, okay, maybe you feel that way, but that's not a very useful historical statement. I mean, what did the guy do? Why don't you tell me that? You don't typically get that in the books. Here's what you do get, okay? Typically, you get this. You get this argument that big business, and here's your, here's your term for the day. Big business, we are told, engages in something called predatory pricing. Ooh, 
Ooh, what does that mean? Well, that means that supposedly big business has the power to, let's say, let's say it's me and uh, Dick Clark's here in the room. We have a guy here named Dick Clark, okay? I, I'll leave all the jokes, American Bandstand jokes out of this. It's not fair. And the young students don't even know what I'm talking about. Anyway, <laughs> fair enough. But suppose I'm competing with Dick Clark. The idea is that if I'm a, a gigantic business, I can charge such low prices that my smaller competitor, Dick Clark, and Dick Clark's like three feet taller than I am, my smaller competitor, Dick Clark, can't possibly match my prices. So I drive him out of business. The idea of predatory pricing is that I price my goods so low, nobody else can price them that low. They all go out of business. Everybody buys from me. But then, when all my competitors are out of business, then I jack the prices back up because where are people going to go? Okay, so it's sort of the principle of why it is if you go to the movies. I don't know why these days you would, but let's say you go to the movies. You notice that the small drink is like eight seventy-five. Like, why is that? Well, pretty much because you, where else are you going to go? You can't smuggle drinks into the theater. And I, you don't have to tell me stories about I smuggled a beer in. Yes, I know you can do it, but you're not allowed to do it. The point is there's nowhere else for you to go. Well, that's the idea of predatory pricing, that the big business drives all the competitors out, raises the prices, there's nowhere else for you to go, got to buy from him, and then he makes all these great profits. Now, a lot of us sort of think, well, you know, that, that, that is what happens. Big business can do that, drives all its competitors out, and then raises price. The problem is you almost cannot find any examples of this. This is, the, this is one of the problems with the theory. Is there don't seem to be any actual real-life examples. We've seen examples of businesses who lower their prices, but, then we, but we don't really see examples of them then raising their prices back up. If Walmart tried to raise their prices back up, everybody would just go to Target, or they'd go to Kmart, or they'd order from Amazon. It's, it's, it's too difficult to, to do this. And even if you do manage to drive all your competitors out, new ones will pop up. If you start raising your prices again, new ones will pop up. So economists these days no longer believe in this. The general public believes in it because that's what we're told all the time. Big business wickedly drives everybody out of business by charging low prices. But economists really don't think that happens. And there's plenty of evidence to show that. And I want to give you a sort of cutesy little story to show what happens when you try this practice of uh, charging really, really low prices to drive out your competitors, and then you get to raise your prices back up again. One of my favorite stories from American business history, which I do include in, in the book, involves Herbert Dow. The name may ring a bell. He, runs the, he ran the Dow Chemical Company. He's dead now. He would be like 187 today or something. But he founded Dow Chemical around the turn of the century, into the 20th century. And he's a great chemical genius. And he was a really, really hard worker. I mean, really hard worker. He would work 18 hours a day and then sleep at his chemical factory and then start up his day again. Now, sure, it meant he grew like a second head and a third arm from hanging around chemicals all day, but it was rewarding enough for him to see his business prosper. Now, what's the deal with this Herbert Dow? He develops uh, a particularly cheap way of producing a chemical none of us use or have heard of called bromine. Now, bromine to, to this day is still used in film developing, in dyes. It's used, it's used to sedate people. There are a variety of, of uses for bromine, but he could sell it really cheaply. So he's selling bromine in the U.S. and you know, as you can as you can guess, if you sell bromine in the U.S. for a while, after a while, you get a little bored with it. Where else can I sell bromine? So he thinks, how about Europe? I'll sell chemicals in Europe. No problem, right? Except if you try to sell chemicals in Europe, there are a group of there's a group of German chemical sellers who don't want anybody else selling in Europe. So when Herbert Dow shows up in Europe and says, "Hey, got cheap bromine for everybody," 
This cartel of German producers knocks on his door and says, oh, no, you do not. You don't sell anything in Europe. We're the German cartel. We sell the chemicals in Europe. You're not going to sell anything. And he said, well, you know what? There's no law against it. I'm going to sell my chemicals here. And so the Germans got really upset. Who does this American upstart think he is? Well, they were selling bromine for 49 cents a pound. Herbert Dow's selling it for 36 cents. So, of course, everybody's buying from him and nobody's buying from this German cartel. They're going crazy. What are we going to do to this guy? So they think, we'll destroy him. We will sell bromine in the U.S. at a price he can't possibly match. And that'll drive him out of business. So they were going to try predatory pricing. So the German cartel starts selling bromine right in Herbert Dow's backyard in the U.S. for 27 cents a pound. 27 cents a pound. So what's, what's Herbert Dow going to do? He can't possibly match that price. Well, he's clever. He's one of the cleverest businessmen you've ever seen. Because what he does is he has his purchasing agent go buy up tons and tons of this bromine at 27 cents a pound in the U.S. And then he goes to Europe and sells it again at, at uh, lower than 49. And so the Germans don't know what's going on, but they're saying, man, there's a huge demand in the U.S. for bromine, much bigger than we thought. How can we possibly keep up with this? So he's still going just fine. He's just buying it up at their price. So as time goes on, they lower it to 15 cents. We'll drive this guy out of business. We'll sell it at 15 cents a pound in the U.S. So he just keeps buying it up at their price and selling it in Europe. And the thing is that they're making losses. When they're selling bromine at 15 cents a pound, these Germans, they're making losses. They want to make up those losses selling at 49 cents a pound in Europe, but he won't let them. He keeps buying it up and selling it cheaply in Europe. So finally they reduce it to 10 and a half cents a pound. I mean, this is going to kill them. And finally, they, finally, 1908, he gets another knock on his door. Not nearly as brusque as that first knock. And so finally, so they, finally they, uh, they say to him, well, how about this? How about we sell bromine in Germany? You sell in the United States, but the rest of Europe is open to free competition. What do you say to that? And he said, okay. And so by just sticking to his guns, he, uh, Herbert uh, Dow totally defeated and, uh, this uh, predatory pricing attempt and became quite wealthy in the process, did, did very well, and, uh, and, and established, in effect, a free market in, uh, in chemicals for the future. So I think that's kind of an interesting story, but where's Herbert Dow in the curriculum? You know, why is he not mentioned? He's a great man, Herbert Dow. We should be proud of him as, uh, as Americans. All right, let me just pause here for a second. I mean, I get so worked up when I'm talking about bromine. It's unbelievable. Oh, gosh, okay.